right, let's pray, let's get started. By the way, good morning, everybody. Jesus, we invite you right now to come speak. We invite you to, to unstop, unstop our deafness, to open our eyes. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. And we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. Amen. Last week, we left off with Jesus in a region of the world, his world, called the Decapolis. It is a non-Jewish area. It was a place where good Jewish boys and girls would not venture off to. Jesus takes his disciples back to the Decapolis, and people are bringing uh, people, people are bringing friends that are sick and hurting and, like last week, blind and deaf to Jesus. And it's pagan territory. And we're going to pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. For they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So people from all over the Decapolis, hungry, thirsty for Jesus, his teaching, his healing, his power. Um, and Jesus recognizes that this is a dangerous situation because they have no food. They've come from all over. And some, he's just like, they're not going to make it. They're going to they're gonna collapse. They're going to fall down and, and collapse because they don't have anything to eat. And he was filled with compassion. That word compassion is actually Greek word meaning, it, it's actually pronounced splagnon. Um, it's actually a, a, a word for like, an in, like the inner part of your gut. Um, and so basically Jesus is saying, he, I mean, it, he has... He's like this gut-wrenching feeling for these people. And he's moved from the inside for them. It says in verse 4, his disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Delmana, Delmanath, that place. Okay, so Jesus, if you're feeling deja vu right now, um, saying like, didn't we already read this? Didn't we already cover this? Well, this is the second feeding story. There's two feeding stories in the book of Mark and in the Gospels. This is the second one, and they're very similar. Um, and, and you can spend the time going through this if you want to compare. Both are in a remote place. Both of them are Jesus and the disciples. Both of them are taking what they have and breaking it, giving thanks. Both of them are very similar. 
where they're different is in who Jesus is feeding. In the first account, a few chapters ago, Jesus is feeding Jewish people. He's in the region of Galilee. These are Jewish people coming out to see him. He's teaching. This time, he's feeding Gentiles. And what Mark is actually doing here is, Mark is actually saying Jesus is not only just the Messiah for Israel, but he is the Messiah for the whole world. And, and this is Mark's way of, of showing his readers, Roman, uh, Jewish Roman uh, citizens, um, sorry, Jewish, Jewish people living in Rome, that, that Jesus is not just Messiah for them, but for the people all around them. And, and, and that he is and, and stands, uh, all that he is and stands for is not just like Jesus is not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Um, even Canadians. So he goes back. This is the crazy part. He goes back to Israel. So, so after this feeding, Jesus gets his disciples, puts them back in the boat, and they head back to Jewish territory. And this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, the word came is, is actually an aggressive, um, an aggressive movement, okay? So this is a Greek word. It's not, just, um, it's not just an action, but it's an action with aggression to it. So they came out looking for a fight, right? They're like, here, here he comes. Let's get him. And they began to question, and the word question there is this idea of, of come come to fight come to um challenge and argue they're they're at war with jesus that's really what's happening here they're at war with jesus and what they want is a sign from heaven um that's what they asked um but but what they really wanted in, in many respects is a is evidence based on some sort of a predetermined or curated criteria of to just give them like this evidence this is we want you to prove to us based on our criteria based on our predeterminations that you're messiah um, this is a great quote from one of my favorite scholars he says the kind of messiah they want will never come they are determined to find a compliant superman clad with heavenly powers that will fulfill their earthly program, the Messiah of their dreams. Now, good thing you and I don't wrestle with that feeling anymore when it comes to Jesus. We're, we're nothing like the Pharisees at all. But here's what's crazy. Jesus does not bend here. Verse 12 says he sighed deeply. I mean, this is goes back to... Uh, I think last week or the week before, the, Jesus sighed. It, it's just like this angst, this groaning. He sighs deeply and says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. He basically said, no, you're not getting a sign. 
see ya. And he goes back across the lake. We don't worry, you know, we're not really sure yet, but um, he leaves them where they are. Now there's two layers going on here that are really interesting. First one is this heart posture of unbelief by the Pharisees. And a couple of things that I think are really important to understand here. The Pharisees aren't doubting. They're actually, they have deep unbelief. There's two different things. Doubt is this, and I sit with people all the time that have doubt, and doubt is a good thing. It's a search for truth. It, it's at its core, it's a struggle to believe, right? And unbelief is this obstinate kind of stubborn hard-heartedness. It's two different things. Unbelief is coming, you want, you want to come to God on your terms. And um, you want God to come to you on your terms. And so when God does not fit our idea of who God is, we, we have unbelief. The second thing going on here is, is it's, it's very heavy with Israel in the wilderness language. This is Exodus language throughout this conversation, 11 through 13 with the Pharisees. There's three words really that are super important for us to understand. One is test, second is generation, and the third is a sign. God in the desert is always tested, it seems like, by the people of Israel. And they're constantly testing God. They're constantly putting God to the test, wanting a sign, wanting a miracle, wanting proof. The second word is generation, and, and we see this word all the time in Exodus, talking about this generation who doesn't trust God to get into the promised land, and then following generation will get in. And the third is this idea of a sign, that God, God's working in the ten plagues and miracle after miracle. And so if you're a first century Jew and you're, you're hearing this account of Mark's, you are picking up on all this very Jewish Old Testament language. And if you're a Jewish person in Rome and you're hearing test and sign and wilderness and Jesus saying, you're not getting a sign, I mean, your ears are picking up. I mean, we just finished a story with this Syrophoenician woman who had a demon-possessed daughter who is a woman who lives in a sexist culture, in a racially charged culture. Uh, she's pagan in a fundamentally fundamentalist religious culture. And she has way more faith in Jesus and his messiahship and his lordship than his own people do. And so it, it, it really at its core, it's a story about you and me. As we wrestle with doubt or unbelief. Because look at verse 14. It says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. So they get back in the boat. They're heading over to the other side of the lake, whatever that part is. And it says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. They've forgotten bread. I mean, they had seven baskets of miracle bread left over from the feeding. But they find themselves on the boat with only one loaf of bread. There's 13 of them. Jesus says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. 
Well, this is an interesting conversation. What is the yeast of the Pharisees? What, it, what, it, what is the yeast of Herod? Leaven, let's just kind of go back real quick culturally. Leaven in this culture was, it was a very uh, bread-based culture. I mean, you baked bread every day. It was just part of your, your staple diet. And so you would hold back a chunk of the dough from the batch before and you would let that ferment and you would add it into the next batch. And it was easy for that little bit that was held back to go bad. And in those days, it was symbolic for evil because evil was subtle and corruptive, corrosive, and it was poisonous but it was subtle. And so what is the heart posture of the Pharisees in Herod? Why is Jesus taking this physical, this metaphor of leaven and, and applying it to two different groups of people? Herod, who I guess you could say is kind of more of a left-wing, more of a liberal, progressive, you know, guy, and the same, he applies the same, uh, the deal to the Pharisees who are more of a right-wing, fundamentalist, religious sect. And what I think is so fascinating is that Jesus uses both the Pharisees and Herod, and he talks about how watch out for the leaven of both of these. One point of convergence that both groups had on the left and on the right was unbelief that Jesus was from God. And they were antagonistic towards Jesus. One of my favorite scholars, Timothy Gombas, he sums it up better than I could. This will be on the screen. He says, Herod and the Pharisees, however, operate from self-preservation self-protection, and self-advancement as they scratch and claw to hold on to power and their positions of authority. They see no value of doing good to others in welcoming outcasts and sinners or in celebrating the restoration of the demon-possessed and the healing of the sick. All that matters to them is holding on to their possessions and positions, protecting their turf, and their social status. Jesus is saying, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. All they're doing is protecting themselves. All they're doing is protecting their turf and their social status. They're holding onto their power and their, and their possessions. And, they, and ultimately, Jesus is saying, watch out for that. I'm a whole different thing. And he says this to the disciples. He says, watch out for that. Why? And in verse 16, this is hilarious. They discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we have no bread. Like they, they actually think that it's because they forgot bread that Jesus is kind of climbing all over them. Um, verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? And he starts a series of seven questions. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So he asked them seven questions. And the reason, um, there may be a reason for the seven, but the heart posture of this is so important because they don't understand what's actually happened here. That the 12 baskets of leftover signify the 12 nation, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. That there is more than enough. That God is coming to do all that and more for the people of Israel. And at the same time that God has come through Jesus to do all that and more for people outside of Israel. The land of the seven, the seven nations, the, the other seven that were not picked by God. And so Jeremiah 5, it, this is what's so fascinating is Jesus is pulling in all this Old Testament imagery. And Jeremiah 5, listen to this. Listen to these words and see if anything sounds familiar. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They, have, they do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains and season, who assures us of regular weeks of harvest. He's saying, Jesus is saying, listen, guys, you are like Israel in the wilderness. Miracle after miracle, but you still don't believe. You still don't get it. You still don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. I fed people for a second time. And now you're sitting in a boat and there's 13 of us and we have one loaf and you are wondering where your next meal is coming from. Don't you trust me? Jesus is frustrated here. Not because he's a jerk or he's rude, but the disciples are missing something that is crucial and vital. And it's vital for us. It's really vital for us, for you and I. When we worry about the stuff of life, when, we fr when we're frustrated and anxious about things that we, we just don't trust, when we worry, we do not trust. We do not think that we're loved. We do not think that God is actually for us. But the resurrection shows us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives in us. And we can like fully flourish in this life, with or without. And so many of us are just infused in our culture with this idea of not having enough. Not having enough in our lives, not even enough for retirement, not having enough just in case something bad happens. We get, we, we, we hedge and we, we do all these things in our lives to build in uh, comfort and security. And that is the greatest enemy of trusting Jesus. Jesus is, and this hopefully is an encouraging rebuke, that we can trust God with everything, that we can trust him with with what we have. 
And it's this idea of the bread of life in contrast to the yeast of the Pharisees, the bread of life and the, and the leaven. The bread of life is broken in gratitude. Jesus, as we get towards communion here, Jesus uh, symbolizes his body being broken and his blood being poured out in gratitude, offering thanks and then passing it out. And the, and the yeast of the, uh, of the Pharisees is something subtle and insidious that gets into our lives. Jesus says to be careful that it doesn't stretch into every area of our lives. And I think there's a few heart postures here we need to talk about. The first one is this heart posture the disciples have. And these are kind of negative heart postures. Heart posture of blindness and not seeing. I mean, all too often in my life, I'm really blind to the things that God is doing all around me. If I'm really honest, I am, I mean, if I'm really honest, I'm swimming in God's world, that God is alive and well and working and moving and transforming and redeeming. And all I see are dark spots. All I see are negatives. All I see are frustrations and anxieties. I don't see God's presence. Um, I get scared. I get nervous. I'm like, we don't have bread, you know, like freaking out. And so what I'm, I'm seeing in my own heart is this heart posture of blindness and not seeing. And what I, what I need to do is begin to start to look for God in uh, the miraculous, but also in the mundane. See what's interesting about these two stories of feeding is they're basic things. Bread, staple diet. I mean, Jesus didn't like whip up a, a lamb feast or a, you know, some burgers or whatever. It was it bread, fish, the mundane, the everyday, the basic, the miraculous in the mundane. And what I don't see so often is that God moves in the everyday. But there's fingerprints of God all over. My encouragement for you this week is look for the fingerprints of God all over your regular life. Second heart posture of the disciples is this heart posture of deafness and not hearing. You and I live in the noisiest, most overstimulated time in the history of the world, of the history of humanity. We're always going somewhere, always listening to something, always reading something, always distracted. And we need to relearn silence and solitude because I really think that God wants to us to get alone, not only by ourselves, but with each other to hear from him. And it's like when you're in a noisy party and there's a lot of small talk happening, and you have someone that really keys in on you and they grab you and they say, hey, can, can I pull you aside? I really need to talk to you. And that's in many ways how God wants to talk with us. And we need to hear from God and, and we need to tune things out. Um, we need to hear from God through each other. And that's why we gather. That's why we're intentional about gathering. Whether it's in a house church or different groups that meet during the week. Don't live your life deaf to God's voice voice. And, and you might be saying, I really haven't heard from God in a, in a while. Well, are you, are you 
actively seeking to hear his whisper. The third heart, heart posture is of forgetting and not remembering. He's always telling his disciples, remember, remember, remember. All throughout the Old Testament, God's saying, remember, remember, remember. Don't you remember the 12 baskets? Don't you remember the seven baskets? So many times in my life, I forget God's faithfulness in my life. The ways that he worked and the ways that he moved and the ways that he challenged me and, and, and pulled me through moments of like heavy faith. Uh, so many times I forget God's faithfulness in the life of our church and how God over and over again has done things to bring us together and to carry us through gently and sometimes, um, sometimes in a rebuke for us. This coming week, may you remember God's faithfulness in, in your past and trust in his faithfulness in the future. The fourth heart, heart posture, negative heart posture, is a heart posture of questioning, not asking. Now, there are difference between questions and questioning. God is not afraid of your questions. This church is not afraid of your questions. Some of you, I just want to be honest, you get really nervous when people start questioning their faith and you feel like you're the last hope and you've got to like, you know, apologetics them and point to scripture. No, you don't need to do that. Just listen. People are asking questions right now about Jesus, about following Jesus right now. And, and, and they're honest, great questions. And we don't need to be freaking out about it. In fact, there's a command in Scripture that says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful. Doubt is the search for truth. There's a difference between that and demanding that God meet you on your terms. That's questioning. But questions are good. The fifth and last heart posture is this. A heart, a heart posture of entitlement and not gratitude. Entitlement, entitlement is all over our worldview. We live in a country and in a society in the West that is individualistic, consumeristic, and entitled. We, have, we are bombarded with phrases in our advertising about you and I deserving something. Jesus takes a handful of basic mundane food items, breaks them, is grateful for them, gives thanks to God for them. And he takes the bread and the, and, and, and the fish, breaks them, thanks God, and then passes it out. And that's a template for us. It's a template for us that we would take the things that we have break them in the sense of their, our hold on them and pass them out. We, we're, we're meant to be grateful people that bless others. And so this idea comes for so many things in our lives, our homes. This is, our, this, is this home. Break it open and pass it out. Open it up. 
to your people, to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors, to people far from God. This is my budget, broken and passed out. This is my retirement dreams, broken, passed out. This is my family. This is my, this is my money. This is my time, broken, passed out. It's a culture of generosity that we see from Jesus in gratitude. And we need to relearn how to give thanks. Because being thankful isn't, oh, thanks for this thing that you've given me. Being thankful is, this is what you've given me. I'm breaking it and passing it out. So a little bit as we wrap up and we head towards communion. This is a lot to do with us right now as a church and me right now as uh, your pastor. We are going on, as a, going on a decade as a community. And there has been a major shift in our focus and it began even before the pandemic. From a Sunday consumer hour Okay, to a Sunday where we participate together. Now, we have sensed God moving as we've gone deeper together this year. Many of our house churches have experienced um, bigger commitments and um, being more creative about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because we believe it's not about learning more facts about the Bible, but it's about, um, I mean, for instance, these discussion questions that you're about to get into, these are not inductive Bible study questions, meaning what did Jesus say here? And what was the response of the disciples? And fill in the blank of this. We don't do those questions. That's for a Bible study somewhere. These questions are meant for you to wrestle. They're meant for you to reflect. They're meant for you to share about your life. Not just the victories, not just about the things that you've got right, but the things that you've got wrong. And my question, my, my, my challenge for you, church, is to actually push into it. To be vulnerable with each other. Just to say, you know what, I feel like I've got this wrong, or I have not done this right, or I've, I've, I've got this issue in my life that's frustrating and that I can't overcome. It's not about uh, uh, keeping your life predictable and manageable. That's not what following Jesus is. And so predictable, manageable answers is not what I think the goal of these questions are. And some of you, to be honest with you, you don't like that. And I, that's fine. You kind of wish we would go back to Sundays that are more manageable and predictable. But we're not going to. We're just not. Um, and there's a lot I want to say about that. And we're going to talk about that even a little bit more next week. But we feel like, I feel like we're in this moment, a liminal space. And I'll define that a little bit more next week. But it's a time of in-between. And most transformation happens in in-between times. Now, I'm not talking about change. I'm talking about transformation. Change is something like, well, I changed the schedule, I changed the tire, I changed this thing from this to this to make my life work better. I'm not talking about change. I'm talking about transformation. 
the people of Israel between Egypt and the promised land were transformed. And it took time and it was frustrating and they sensed a wandering and a, a lostness, but God was transforming them. And I believe that God is doing the same thing for us right now. God is testing us. God is transforming us. God is doing something in me and in you as a church for the future. And Jesus is asking me and he's asking us, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Will you trust me that there's something better coming in the future? And so the invitation for you and I is to trust and to trust together. And next week, we're having our all church gathering here at Fellowship out in the picnic area. And we're going to talk a little bit about this because this is the hinge moment of the book of Mark. This next week begins a huge shift. Jesus has been talking about what the kingdom of God looks like. He's been showing them what it looks like. He's been beckoning them to be involved in it. Next week, we switch gears. Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? And then he talks about what it looks like to follow him. And following Jesus is about transformation. It's about this liminal space. And so today as we wrap up, this story has been a story about a meal. And every time we share a meal together, that food is a sign that God is love and that he is presence in our life. So the, the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist, the Eucharisto, as it says, the, the bread and the this is the sign, this is the center of our worship of God. This is the center of it, the bread and the cup. The center of our worship of God is not a sermon, it's not songs, it is the bread and the cup, it is the table together. Every time we eat and drink, okay, the body and blood of Jesus, every time we do that, it is evidence of the miraculous and the mundane. The bread basic, the wine, basic. It is proof of Jesus's love for us. It is proof of his power over us, and it is proof of his presence with us. And so this morning, in your house church, I want you to take the bread. I want you to break it. I want you to give thanks, and I want you to pass it. I want you to pass it. And I want you to remember that it's also your life involved here of giving thanks, breaking it, and passing it. And then I want you to take the cup, the blood of Jesus. And I want you to thank God. I want you to thank Jesus for his sacrifice, for his love, for his forgiveness, for his pulling us into the mission of the kingdom together. And I want you to pass this cup and drink. Church, I love you. Okay? We're on a journey together. And I can't wait for what God is going to do.